In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast, Nature. Even if you're an avid outdoorsman, you likely take it for granted. When you've seen one tree or one blue sky, you've seen them all, right? Well, to those with well-trained senses, natural surroundings can actually tell you a whole lot. The leaves on a tree can tell you what direction you're headed, and the smell in the air can tell you about the weather. There are bits of knowledge and fascinating signposts all around you out there in the wilds. And my guest today has spent his life observing and cataloging these small details in nature, and uses them to deftly navigate the wild without a map or compass. His name is Tristan. Tristan Gooley. He's the author of several books, including his latest, How to Read Nature. And today on the show, Tristan tells us how he got started with natural navigation and how he goes about rediscovering what was once common knowledge to our ancestors. We then dig into specific ways you can use nature to navigate or even know if there's a storm coming soon. After listening to the show, you're never going to look at trees the same way again. I guarantee it. And when you're done listening to the show, besides checking out trees, go check out our show notes at aom.is slash readnature. Right, Tristan Gooley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So you have an interesting title. Uh, you are a natural navigator. What is a natural navigator and how did you become one? Was this something when you knew you wanted to be when you were a kid? It was a really gradual process. I was, um, I was a restless kid. I'd, I'd see a hill and think it might be more interesting at the top than the bottom. And, and I'd be standing on a lake thinking it might be more fun on the other side. And it was pretty gradual. The hills became mountains, the lakes became oceans. And... I, I don't know the exact moment when I realized that navigation was the, was the key to the sort of, you know, fun that I wanted. And I've since discovered that in every journey we take of any description, you're either a navigator or a passenger. And there's nothing wrong with being a passenger, but life's a bit more fun if occasionally you think, right, I'm going to be the navigator this time. And that's, that's, I think, the kind of bug I got even before I knew what the word navigation meant. And the journey's got a bit bigger, bolder, a bit more ambitious, a little bit more um, risky at times. And then there was another realization, probably in my mid-20s, when I appreciated that the scale of the journey wasn't actually determining how much fun or satisfaction I was getting. I was, um, I was sometimes taking on journeys of, you know, thousands of miles and doing some, some quite challenging navigation, but I get to the end of them and I think, I'm not convinced that was any more exciting than, than what I was doing as a 10-year-old. And it, it was a it's a frustrating feeling. And then I realized, wait a minute, I'm just staring at, you know, electronics and maps and stuff like that. And so I tried something different. I'd come across the idea you can find your way using nature. And I just tried to find my way across some, some woods. Uh, and a one-mile journey suddenly felt it was amazing being transported back as, a, as an adult to that feeling of excitement you can have as a kid. So from that moment on, I was, um, 
yeah, that that was it. I was smitten. I was going to um, I was going to pursue this natural navigation thing. So you don't use compass maps. It's just looking at nature to to orient yourself. Yeah, it's it's the view I take is that absolutely everything outdoors is part of a map and compass, and I mean lit- literally everything. You know, if you want if you want to, you can fire a few things at me, and I'll I'll sort of give you an idea of how I would use those as a map or compass. But it's it's not about precision. It's about getting a better feel for where we are and how we can get to where we want to be. Um, if, if all we want is the most accurate, fastest way of getting somewhere, then natural navigation isn't very often the solution. Um, so, yeah, pretty, pretty much everything from stuff you can see in the sky to stuff on the ground, things in the water, you know, it's, it's all, it's all can be used as a, as a map or compass. And, and my life's work has been about understanding that that better. And what kind of journeys have you gone on using just natural navigation? The vast majority of my journeys are a mix of all types of navigation. Um, I've I've flown solo and sailed single-handed across the Atlantic, and it's actually illegal to fly without using the instruments to make it safer. Everybody will be pleased to hear. So in that situation, it's more it's more a case of natural navigation adds a layer on. Knowing that the sun rises in the northeast in the middle of summer, you know, means that the bright glare above the ice, um, you know, up in uh, up in Greenland and places like that is is the the brightness is coming from where it should be, if that makes sense. So it's a lot of natural navigation is a, is a jigsaw. You're, you're taking pieces, so it doesn't actually matter what you're using. It's the layers you add to it. So quite often, I will, you know, I might walk into a wild place using a map and compass, and then just stick them in the bottom of a, a backpack and find my way out without using them. I never recommend people leave everything at home because, you know, there's a difference between relying on stuff and staring at it the whole time uh, and knowing it's there if you need it. So that that tends to be what I do. And I, you know, probably 19 out of 20 of the journeys I do are quite small. A, a small number of them are, are, are big, um, but you can just get so much satisfaction from you know, literally five miles of, of natural navigation will feel like a major expedition, I guarantee it. And how did you uncover these these methods, you know, this way of looking at the world? Because it sounds like this was once common knowledge amongst in humanity at one point before the map and compass and all these devices that we have. So how have you uncovered or rediscovered these these uh, insights into natural navigation? Well, I've been really lucky because I'm not very good at, at focusing on one thing for very long periods. And it turns out that natural navigation is a collection of pretty much all human experience. So there's there's astronomy, there's, there are wonderful cultural sort of uh, treasure troves. So there are techniques you can find in, in the ancient Greek myths. Uh, Odysseus found his way across the Mediterranean by keeping Arctos, the bear constellation, on his left. That's a northerly constellation so that's that's how he managed to keep going east so things like that they're an inspiration i might not use that exact method i'll, I'll use perhaps a more contemporary version of it but it gives me ideas of how i can do things and then i'll, I'll discover you know a, a method of using a tree i've never thought of by reading the latest academic article in a in a in a journal like nature so i'm combining something from thousands of years ago with something that was published perhaps 24 hours ago um, astronomy one minute, botany the next, geology the day after that. And as I say, it's, it's you know, the world needs specialists. The world needs people who focus on just one thing and become the best in the world at a small niche within astronomy. But I couldn't do that. I, I love the fact that it sort of it allows me to be um, sort of intellectually promiscuous. I can kind of, you know, I can, I was out there looking at fungi this morning and seeing if they were going to help me on my, on my journey. Whereas 
you know, t- tomorrow it might be the way the clouds help. And are there still pockets of humanity that still rely on nature to navigate? Yeah, the mostly the um, indigenous communities in, in remote areas are using this. They all have their own unique view of navigation. There's no human culture on Earth where navigation isn't an integral part of life. Uh, and I should probably expand on that a little bit because my view of navigation is when we wake up in the morning and decide which side of bed to get out of, that's the start of navigating as far as I'm concerned. There's a there's quite a popular sort of perception that navigation is kind of a sort of niche technical skill and it only need bother less than 1% of the people in the world. But unless you're planning to stay still for your whole life, you, you're a navigator. So, so these are skills everybody needs. And within indigenous communities, you know, some of them will be nomadic uh, and a large part of their life is taken up with, with natural navigation wisdom. So I, I spent some time with some, some nomads, uh, some Tuareg in the Sahara, and the way they, they can read detail in their landscape, and this is quite a common theme, people, people get used to their own patch. So wherever we live in the world, we notice any slight change in our landscape. You know, if you live in the center of a, a city, if a, if a shop closes and another one opens, you notice it. Whereas somebody who lives in a wild area might not notice that. But if you go to their wild area, if a, if a tree starts becoming less healthy, they notice it, but, but the city person might not. So out in the desert, until you're used to it, every single patch of sand looks quite similar. And then you realize the Tuareg are just seeing, you know, just such, such subtle differences just stand out to them. So they are seeing a map in, in what to us appears sort of, you know, sort of homogenous, just, just sand everywhere. And that, so those, you know, there are cultures all over the, all over the world. I spent some time with the, the Dayak in Borneo. And instead of using sand, they're using the way water flows. So their concept of direction is all to do with the way rivers, you know, the water flows and gradient. And I think the Inuit, like they can look at snow and figure out where they're at, even though everything looks exactly the same. Yeah, that's a great example. And that's the sort of thing that I think somebody who's not familiar with these sorts of techniques might think, wow, that's just, that's impossible. That's kind of, that's a weird thing that, you know, one society has spent their life focusing on, therefore they can do it. But actually... It's quite simple because whenever the wind blows over any surface on Earth, it doesn't matter whether you're in the middle of a city, up in the Arctic, in the middle of an ocean, in the middle of a desert, in, in a rural area, the wind, the way I put it, is the wind leaves footprints. So everywhere on Earth has trends, prevailing winds, winds that come from certain directions more often than others, and they will leave marks. And it's just getting to know the marks in your area. The simplest possible technique, which applies pretty much all over the world, is that the wind will create shapes where there's a shallower angle on the direction the wind has come from and a steeper angle on the side that the wind is going towards. So all you have to do is, is however you do it, there are lots of different ways of doing it, but how do you do it? You work out where the prevailing winds are in your part of the world, and then you find these shapes. It's the shape of waves swell in the middle of the ocean, which allows the, the uh, Pacific Islanders to find land that, that you know, technology would struggle to find. It's, it's the way ice is shaped. It's the way sand dunes are shaped. It's the way uh, trees are shaped and, you know, right down to sort of little little bits of dust in, in towns, you, you get these shapes everywhere. Well, it's crazy, you know, and you said earlier that if, you, if you're in it all the time, you'll notice that. But let's, I think most of our people who are listening to this podcast, they might live in a city, a suburb. So they're well acquainted with that, that scape of life. What's the mindset shift that needs to occur so they can start noticing things in nature? Is it just a, like, how do you get to that? Is it just a matter of spending more time in nature? Well, the, the, 
one of the big tips uh, I'd I'd want to give your listeners is it, this is not a an either or thing. What I'd recommend is before you go to the technology or whatever you, you're going to use to answer your question of how do I find or what direction is something, just have a go at answering it yourself. Uh, and the philosophy is it doesn't matter if you're wrong, and unless you're sort of you know running sort of an hour late for a you know the most important meeting in your life, most of us can spare twenty seconds. So those twenty seconds, you just go right. I know the map on my on my smartphone is going to sort this out for me, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna have a bit of fun here. I reckon, okay, I've just been I've just been keeping track of the fact that the clouds are moving this way before I got on the subway, and I'm now I'm now popped out, and I know that the station I'm getting out of is 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 west of where I need to go, and I know which way the clouds go. So my best guess is I need to go down that street, and then you turn to the technology, uh, and more often than not, what what it says is you're not 100 percent right, but you're you're not you're not wrong either. And that, that's the beginning of quite a lot of fun because you suddenly realise that it's doable uh, and, yeah, we don't have to be too hard on ourselves. We're not, you know, we're not trying to become, become you know, like sort of a desert nomads in, in the space of a day or two. Another really fun way into it is just randomly, you know, you could be looking out of an office window and you just sort of go, which way am I looking? And you can try and answer it, north, south, east or west. And you go... Right. Well, how am I going to answer it? Again, it doesn't matter if you're wrong. It doesn't matter if you're wrong the first 15 times you do it. You'll notice things that nobody else is noticing. You'll notice, oh, that's weird. The birds are always flying past that way. Or, you know, I can tell that, that you know, the sun must have been there. You know, I can't see it because it's cloudy because that whole part of the street has dried. It rained two hours ago. That part's dried. You have a go. You might be 30 degrees out or something. It doesn't matter. You, you've noticed a whole load of things the way an indigenous person would do. Uh, and you keep doing it. And then you you surprise yourself quite nicely because the moment comes where you're, you're high-fiving yourself because you get it right. And those examples you gave, like you didn't have to get out into the you know, quote-unquote wilds. Like you could do this from your office. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things that a technique people would use in the wild, which we can actually, quite often the techniques that are used in the wild, the ones we'll borrow um, and, and tweak slightly to use in a city. So a good example is, um, academics believe that the way the Pacific Islanders found new land was by, in a very sort of casual way, studying bird migration patterns. Now, we can use that all over the world, but actually a nice city version is human beings migrate, uh, and we sort of do it on a daily, and a daily pattern. So whereas it might be a six-month six cycle out in the middle of the Pacific, in a city, if you're completely and hopelessly lost, if you go against the flow of people in the morning or with the flow of people late in the afternoon, you're going to find the nearest transport hub, the nearest station. Now, that might not, that might not form a perfect map for you, but it's the start of a process where you go, okay, not everything's random. In fact, very little is random. So you're just starting to put one small piece in the jigsaw and starting to get a, a picture of what's going on around you. That's fantastic. Well, in, in your book, How to Read Nature and The Lost Art of Reading Nature Signs, you give, what I love about it is you give these specific I don't know, tips, I, I, would, I would call them, or um, mental models, I guess we'll, we'll call them, on how to observe nature. And so if it's okay with you, I'd love to kind of get into some specifics because as we were, I was talking, telling you um, before we started the recording was after reading this book, whenever I go outside now, I'm looking at my surroundings in a completely different way because I know these things that I should be looking for. So if it's okay with you, can we go through some of this stuff? Because I think some, it's just really yeah. fascinating. Yeah, I'd love to. Okay, well, let's talk like you start off talking about like kind of big picture, getting a lay of the land, and you recommend using a method called sorted, which is an acronym. What is the sorted method, and what are we trying to do 
um, with this method? Yeah, it's, it's as you say, it's, it's a way of sort of zooming in, starting with a very broad focus, uh, S-O-R-T-E-D, sorted. So we start with S for shape, uh, and every landscape uh, we're in, whether it's urban or wild, we're going to find there are, there are one or two quite dominant uh, geographical influences. And just once we tune into them, we notice there's a slightly higher bit of ground, and then there's a valley, and then there's a river, for example. Once we've tuned into that, we've actually started to form quite an important map. As I say, the, the, the Dayak in Borneo um, can find their way, they can walk for literally days just on that idea. So it sounds very vague and perhaps not hugely practical. But once you start to think, okay, I know which side of the river I am, and then you start to relate to where various things are compared to that, then you, you've just started to form a very basic sort of map. The O, um, I, I, you know, I use the word ologies, so in terms of the soil and, and various other things, but it's really a very broad brush way of saying what what is in the ground. Um, so if we know, for example, we're in a very sort of acidic area, you're going to get a certain type of landscape. You'd expect, you know, if there's loads of granite around, you've got a certain type of moorland. If you've got very alkaline soil, you expect different types of wildflowers. So if we just start to put two pieces together, we start to think, okay, I know I'm on slightly higher ground. I know that the river is out there somewhere and I know I'm on this type of soil. So I'll be able to tell before I hit the river that there are these certain types of, of plants. Because I've noticed when the soil is this type, I get bright purple flowers before I hit water. So, so we just started to put another couple of pieces together. Next thing are for, for roots. So pretty much every landscape we're likely to find ourselves in, the one or two exceptions, there will be some sort of human footprints. There'll be paths there'll be tracks, there'll be roads, there'll be rail. And they tend to mirror the nature's own kind of, you know, we don't, we don't go and put a road in the, in the, in the hard, hardest possible place. So we find there's a relationship between those and the hills and the rivers and things like that. And so we're just starting to put another layer on, on top of that. Then we've got T for tracks. That's just starting to tune into who else is out there. We all know what sort of human footprints look like in our various different sort of footwear, but we start to pick up on what the other animals are doing. Um, and again, all these pieces start to fit together because the relationship between the high ground, the water, and what the animals are doing is, is all integrated. There's very, very little that, that's random out there. Um, e is for, for edges. So whenever we're walking along a path or a track, we get a huge concentration of things happening at the, the edge of, of any track or path we're walking down. It's just one of, the, one of the sort of laws of nature that most stuff happens at edges. So if you're, if you're in a rural area, you've got a few sort of fields and then a woodland, the vast majority of action is going to happen where the, the fields touch the woodland. And it's the same as true on paths. You get the greatest number of, of plants just at the edge of the path, not in the middle and not way out into the wilderness either, because it's just that mix, mix of things happening. And then D is a kind of catch-all, it's details. You know, in, in the Lost Art of Reading Nature Signs, there are 850 things to look for. So D is kind of, we kind of feel we've got the broad brush. We know the shape of the land. We know, what, we know what it's made of. We know where the kind of rivers are. We know all of these sorts of things. We know what animals are there. Uh, and then D is just kind of like, okay, I'm now going to try and work something out just from the, the size of the leaf in front of me. That's awesome. I love that. And it, this mental model is fantastic because I've been using it in the past few days. And it's crazy, sort of the, the map you can develop in your brain just by using the sorted method. It's, it's phenomenal. Well, let's get into some of these details because not only is, can it be useful to navigate, I just think it's interesting and it's uh, made me more appreciative or more mindful of my environment. So for example, my, one of my favorite chapters was on how to use trees to figure out 
you know, which direction is which. Yeah, this is a, a really good example of how if you haven't come across this stuff, it can seem like the dark arts. It's kind of what we can use. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's, it's, and, and, that, and, and actually underpinning it all is just some very, very simple sort of nature. Um, all green plants are responding to the, the elements, in particular things like light and wind. Uh, once we know the sun is due south in the middle of the day, every day of the year, and, and that's when it's giving us most of its light, we find that, of course, green plants, you know, light is a huge influence. You know, it's, it's their breakfast, breakfast, lunch and dinner. They, they, they can't function without it. So actually, it'd be really odd if any green plants were symmetrical. If you're getting most of your energy from one side of the sky, as it were, you know, it, kind of, it doesn't make any sense to be symmetrical. So we find that the shape of a tree is influenced by that. We find there are more and bigger branches on average on the southern side of trees, particularly deciduous trees, some of the pines as well, like the Scots pine. But the next thing we find is that actually, if we, if we zoom in a little bit, the shape of the branches is shaped by light as well, because the branches are growing towards the sunlight, which means on average, they will grow more vertically on the northern side and closer to horizontal on the southern side. Uh, and what that means is, if you're looking from one side of the tree, you get what I call the check effect. You just imagine sort of drawing a, we, we call them ticks in the UK, I think you guys call them checks. You just draw a check in the air. You have that sort of vertical side to it and then a horizontal side to it. And that, it's a subtle effect. Um, in truth, most of the stuff that I write about and research is obvious when you know to look for it, but actually sits just below most people's sort of sort of noticing radar, if you know what I mean, because it's, it's, there are certain things everybody sees. Everybody can count the rings on a, on a, you know, a tree trunk that's been, been felled. That's stuff that's still obvious. But most of the stuff is really easy to see when you know to look for it. If we then think of the leaves in, in, um, in deciduous trees, uh, we have two types of leaf. We have the sun leaf and the, and the shade leaf. On the north side of the tree, the leaves aren't getting enough energy. So the tree has a, a trick. It sends a sort of chemical message to the leaves. Basically says you need to sort your act out. And what it does is the leaves change from sun leaves to shade leaves. They grow bigger, darker in colour and thinner. So what we find is the leaves on the north side of a tree are bigger and darker in colour than the ones on the south side of the tree. And there are, you know, you get more roots on the side of a tree that the, the wind comes from. So once you know the prevailing wind direction in your area, and it's the sort of thing you only need to sort of work out once, it'll cover, you know, thousands of square miles most likely, you can see that these roots... This is a fun thing you can do, actually. You can, you can sort of, um, you won't be able to do it on yourself because I'm about to give you the answer, but you can do it on a, a, a friend. And just ask them to draw a tree and then ask them to draw the roots. And what you'll find is they draw the roots underground. But actually, if you go out there and have a look at trees, the vast majority of trees, you can see the roots where they, where they come up from the ground, joining the trunk of the tree above the ground. And these are called guy roots. And they, they are there like guy ropes on a tent to stop the tree uh, being pushed over by the winds. So it's logical. Almost all this stuff is just, it's almost like nature's common sense. It's like, well, if you're going to have roots to stop a tree blowing over, you're going to want them bigger, stronger, and longer on the side that the wind comes from. So in, in, in total, there are 19 different methods, but we, we've got a nice selection there, hopefully. And you even talk about how the bark on some sides are darker or lighter than the other because the tree creates its own sunscreen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, you, you get a mixture. Instead of looking for individual algae, lichens, mosses, or other effects on the tree, what I recommend to people is, because it will be slightly different wherever you are, it's just once you, whether you're using the sun or a compass or a smartphone, it doesn't matter. Once you've kind of got your bearings, just notice how 
in any light woodland, if you're in really dense woodland, there's not enough light to create dramatic effects. But most woodland we'll find ourselves in, a bit of light's getting in. And you'll notice the colour on each side of the bark is, at first it appears subtly different. And then when you tune into it, you, you, you start to notice that actually it's quite a dramatic difference quite often. You know, the more sort of open the woodland is, the more dramatic the effect. Sometimes you'll get really, really vivid colours. In some, some parts of the world, I found sort of bright greens and bright oranges on the south side of trees and very dark strips. Uh, sometimes you get this kind of this rust colour on the north side of a tree, which is a, an algae called Trentipolia. But actually, the people can get put off if they think, right, I've got to look for this individual thing that's called this in this situation. You don't need to do any of that. You just kind of go out there and you go, OK, I've got my bearings. It's, it's lunchtime. I know the sun's south in the middle of the day. OK, so that's roughly south. Oh, yeah. When I look that way, all the trees are this color. And when I look that way, they're a different color and you're, you're up and running. Right. That's the one I've been using a lot because there's trees everywhere. And so you can trust it. But it, it's hard, I've noticed, in like suburban neighborhoods. Because, like, as you said, most trees have this you know, general asymmetrical shape thanks to nature. But in most you know, suburban areas, trees are trimmed. So they, they're more symmetrical. So that's one sign that you're around human beings is that trees take on an oddly symmetrical shape. Yes. And even in those ones, it's, it's worth looking, look at the very tops of the tree, because you're quite right. You know, the more, more densely populated an area is, the more we tend to bully nature. So, so yeah, we'll, we'll trim trees right down. But if, if, there'll still be a little bit of growth up the top of the tree probably that's been exposed to the prevailing winds you know even even in the heart of quite big cities you know i found it in the heart of london in manhattan um you just see you just see a little what looks like a sort of giant's hand has sort of brushed over the top of the tree and you just get a very slight bending in the in the most exposed the most exposed part of the tree is obviously the highest part but that also tends to be the weakest part so it doesn't take you know it doesn't take sort of gale force winds to bend those over you just you just need a little prevailing wind reaching it which you know you might not get in a in a you know a high rise sort of street, but but in a park in a city you, you can quite often spot it. And you can also use not just individual trees, but like how trees grow together to figure out uh, if you're close to humans or a city or not. Like I think you talked about in the book, if there's you come upon a, a wooded area and there's just a really fine like a detailed line, like where the the, the forest quote unquote starts. That, that's something you should tune into because that might mean you're close to a city or a farm or something. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that we, we can build quite quickly uh, and it sort of appeals to our sort of ancient view of, of nature is when other human beings are involved, you have been, you know, getting involved in the landscape. Because if we think historically, it, it was quite an important sign. Um, if you're walking across an area that you think is total wilderness, you know, going back many thousands of years now, uh, and actually, it's it's a place that's that's been occupied by other humans that you don't know are there. You know, that's as great a threat as anything, you know, nature's going to throw at you probably. So my theory, which I can't back up with any science, it's just a gut feel, is that is that we are particularly sensitive to, to any signs of, of, of human sculpting of the landscape. So as you say, you know, straight lines on forests, you know, nature doesn't create that many straight lines. If you, if you talk to indigenous people, they, they'll go several years without seeing a right angle. And so with these straight lines we tend to pick up on, our, our eyes and our brain work together to notice shapes really, really effectively. Uh, and once we know that certain shapes aren't natural, we, we sort of start to go, OK, we're, we're getting close to, to a town now. And again, a lot of natural navigation is, is shape recognition. You know, if you notice, you know, there's a, a copse, there's a small sort of woodland on the hill and you just happen to notice, oh, that's an interesting shape. The trees are shorter on one side than the other. 
that's not going to be random. That's because there's more wind coming from that side. So again, you've got a compass on the top of a hill that might be, you know, four or five miles away. So you mentioned earlier that you uh, were observing some mushrooms and fungi to figure out if that could be any of use to you in your natural navigation. Are there any things you've come across that with mushrooms or mosses or algae where they have a particular pattern that can lend clues to know where you're at? Yeah, the, the, the golden rule that sort of underpins all of this is is no organisms live in isolation. They all have some relationships with other things. If we take take the idea of, you know, every animal is, is dependent on plants at some point in its food chain, even if it's a carnivore, it's going to eat something that, it, that is then eating plants. Every single plant is sensitive to what's in the ground, what's happening in the sky, temperature, air quality, all of these things. So what we find is actually it's a totally interconnected jigsaw. So if we take the example that every tree is part of a map, beech trees don't like waterlogged soil, um, alders, willows, trees like that, quite happy in, in quite wet ground. So if we're at the top of the hill, we're looking out there, we go, okay, we can choose those trees for a dry route, those trees if we're looking for a river. And then there are other trees which help us in a different sort of map making, and they are trees, some trees need to, they establish themselves very slowly. So trees like oaks are, you know, they don't just pop up randomly all over the place. Whereas trees like, you know, birches do, they have a totally different strategy for survival, which is, you know, millions of seeds on the wind, popping up all over the place. Very, very few of them survive, you know, past the, past the first 10 years of life. But there are so many out there that it kind of works for them. But in a map making sense, what that means is they tend to do really well in, at the edge of forests. They're kind of the kind of first in, they're like the, the advanced party. They go in there and start. Over many decades, the slower trees, like the oaks, will, will start to bully them out because they have a better long-term strategy. So in map-making terms, what we say is, okay, we, we feel a bit lost in the woods, and you were just sensitive to the fact that trees have changed. We've been passing a few oaks and a few beaches. Suddenly we're seeing birches. Ah, we're getting near the edge of the woodland. Now all we do is bring in an extra piece, which is, you know, fungi don't live in isolation. They have, um, you know quite often uh, essential relationships with other organisms, not least trees and tree roots. So we quite often find these, these sort of, if not symbiotic, then certainly sort of partnership relationships where a certain fungi will mean a certain tree. So there's a, there's a, there's a fungi, you know, I see, see around here a bit and, um, you know, there'll be an equivalent um, where you are. It's called the fly agaric and it's bright red with white spots. It's kind of, it's probably the one that inspired the sort of fairy tale toadstool, you know, the one I mean with the bright red and the white spot. And that is a very strong indicator of birch trees. So if we start bringing all of those pieces together, we feel a bit lost in the woods. The only thing we can remember to do is, right, we just mustn't walk in circles. So we've, you know, we've decided to try and use, use whatever method we have, maybe the feel of the wind. We're going to try not to walk in circles. And because we're sensitive to the nature, we've noticed the trees have changed and then suddenly we spot the, the bright red mushroom in the distance. Yes, it's a fly agaric. Yes, there are the birch trees. So, so it's all, all part of that map of um, things getting a, a little bit better. Yeah. So yeah, everything builds upon it. You can't just use, you can't use these things in isolation. Oftentimes you have to use them interconnected because nature is interconnected. Absolutely. It's to do with the size of uh, jigsaw pieces. If, if, if our aim is to for people to get up and running, they'll just want, to be honest, they'll just want tricks. I try not to teach tricks because it's sort of, in a way, it's stripping out some of the interest. But sun due south in the middle of the day, if nobody's used that for a while and you just start using it, you start to notice other things quite quickly. But that's, that's like one big jigsaw piece that's giving you a really dependable bit of direction. 
at the other end of the scale, we might have the way a, you know, a certain butterfly has a relationship with a certain plant, or, or perhaps it only flies in certain temperatures. And, you know, so that's a, you know, quite an arcane bit of knowledge that is unlikely to be your biggest piece of the jigsaw, but it could be the piece that makes a difference. And it's quite often the, the small jigsaw pieces are the ones that give us the confidence to then actually bring some other ones in. So a good example might be, I say to people, you know, if you feel lost and you're starting to get that quite normal, natural feeling of panic, start seeing if you can work out north or south from temperature. Just start feeling two sides of a rock or two sides of a tree. And what happens is probably, you know, nine times out of 10, there isn't a big enough temperature difference to give you a really strong fix on direction. You're not going to feel two sides and go, ah, that's so much warmer. That's definitely south. Off we go. But actually what it does do is it kicks your brain into the, it gets it away from panic into a kind of, I'm not totally out of control here. I've got some information and it, and the second you start doing that, the number of times I've done that and I've spotted something on the ground or nearby and you very quickly go from that feeling down, you're feeling like you're falling down into the sort of valley of panic. You suddenly get pushed back up to this feeling of like, this might not be easy, but I can do it. One of my favorite chapters was the chapter on the sky, like a blue daytime sky. Cause I think it's something we take for granted. Uh, and also I liked it because I was able to finally, I know what to tell my kid when he asked me, why is the sky blue? It's one of those things you, you, you learn when you're in elementary school or primary school, and then you forget as an adult. Um, but what are some things that people take for granted about a blue daytime sky? And, and how can we use that information that we take for granted to know, get our bearings in the world? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good example of how, you know, our brain's never idle. It's, it's taking in stuff all the time. But we've, in the modern lifestyle, we've kind of shifted that focus. So we now, we now see a new email popping into our inbox the way an ancient person would have noticed a slight change in color in the sky. So one of the exercises you know, that doesn't necessarily give you a huge amount of useful information, but it starts to sort of show you what, what you're perhaps not seeing is that, you know, we go out and we see what we think is a, a pure blue sky. If you go out there and look there and scan all around the horizon and above you and in all directions, not staring directly at the sun, because that's obviously not good for us, but, but in every other direction, and we suddenly notice that there, yeah, there are a hundred colours there. You know, the horizon is never pure blue, uh, unless you're at the top of a very high mountain. Um, you know, you're, you're going to look out and you look at the horizon and you're going to see a colour that is, is much closer to white than, the, than the, the blue of the sky above you. If it's the start of the day and you've got the sun uh, in the eastern sky, you'll notice an awful lot of brightness um, reflecting back from the west as well because the air actually reflects light back at us. So you start to realise that there's, there's this kind of tapestry of, of shades and colours that have always been there, but we haven't necessarily noticed them. And once you start tuning into that, you start to notice that, hey, wait a minute, that little patch of whiteness up there isn't explained by sunlight reflecting or anything like that. What is that? Ah, that's the wispy candy floss type cloud. That's cirrus. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I better keep an eye on that because I know that cirrus quite often comes at the leading edge of a, of a front. Ah, okay. A few hours later, there's a little halo around the sun. Oh, that's cirrus stratus. I know cirrus followed by cirrus stratus. The weather's about to get, is about to deteriorate. So, one simple exercise, you know, raises the awareness, and it's the raised awareness that makes us notice the the signs of of, uh, of coming change. Right, and then also you can um, use some of this information to figure out if there are particles in the air, like man-made particles, like pollution. Um, the sky changes color, or there's the, their smells are more strong because of things like that. Yeah, one of one of my favorites is the way temperature, smell, and and sound can can all all connect. Um, 
And when you, uh, if you wake up on, in the morning and it's a sort of cool morning, quite common um, at sort of full time, and you just suddenly pick up a sort of musty smell in the air. It's, it's like smoke, but it's not that sort of powerful acrid smell you get if there's a fire near you. But you're just picking it up because, again, we've evolved to pick that. That's a really important smell in a, in a, a sort of you know, evolutionary context. You go, oh, I wonder what that is. If you then, having picked up that smell, just have a really good listen. And if you're in a place you know well, you'll start to notice you can hear things that you can't normally. And you'll also start to notice that visually things are a little bit different at the horizon because what's happened is there's a temperature inversion. Normally, as we know, the air gets cooler with altitude. It's colder at the top of mountains and the bottom. But occasionally, a layer of warm air will sit on top of cold air and trap it like a sandwich. And we, we're in that cold layer of the sandwich and sound and light is getting trapped in there as well so we hear things loud things whether it's an airport a road a train station an explosion you know something like that will travel much further under an inversion uh, but also in the horizon particularly if you're anywhere near water you'll notice these wonderful optical effects things like the there's an italian name for it called the fata morgana which is um it's a type of fairy is is, is the idea but it makes things appear to float it's similar to sort of mirage but a little bit different so what we start to realise is the smell we smell when we walked out in the morning is actually connected to the way that we're hearing a train we can't normally hear. Yeah, just part of the, the, the interconnectedness. I love that. And there's so much more we could talk about. How many you know, things did you say you, you've collected that you should look for out in nature? It's like, was it some 800? In that book, uh, The Lost Art of Reading Nature Signs, there are, there are 850 uh, or, or a few more. But the way my work generally goes is I've probably collected, if I had to guess, over 10,000. But my job as a writer um, is, is to act as quite a stern filter. So pretty much every day I'm gathering a few, but it, it's, it's, it's the exception when it feels powerful enough that I'm still using it a month later. And if it's absolutely brilliant, I'll find I'm using it three months or six months later, and then it makes it into a book. So my kind of job is to go out there and I kind of you know, it's, it's like sort of foraging for, for clues. And as I say, there'll be a few each day, but it's, you know, it's, it's a good week if, if there are sort of, you know, two or three that, that make it into the following week. So it's, it's, it's quite a brutal sort of pruning process to get the ones that are good enough for the book. Right, Darwinian. Well, I'm, I'm curious, Tristan, um, you know, since you've been doing this um, natural navigation, how has it changed the way you look at other parts of your life? Right, like you know, as in your in your personal life, whatever. I mean, is, has that carried over sort of the the observation and the mindfulness? Yeah, I, I think it's. Um, I think I realised that. Um, yeah, I can probably go a day without being in in nature and not not you know sort of notice it too much. But if I go a whole week without it, I yeah, I definitely don't enjoy that. Uh, and I think it's we all. I think exercise is a good analogy as well because I think we all by trial and error, find that there's a certain amount of exercise that we not just want, but need. Um, some people get away with not very much. Some people feel they need to, you know, run a marathon a week. And it's, it's, it's you know, I think fresh air is, and, and sort of nature immersion is, is a similar thing. I think we all, we all need some, but it's not for me to say, to, to say how much. But in a, in a sort of slightly broader sense, I think, you know, taking an interest in navigation and having a bit of a fun with it can actually help in terms of decision making, because I think one of the things that we're all capable of and isn't isn't necessarily the strongest sort of side to all of our characters is this feeling that, you know, life forces us down this trajectory and we're just going to grumble about it and just sort of, you know, 10 years are going to go by where things don't go exactly the way we want. Uh, and it was just life dealing me, you know, you know, bad card after another. And we all kind of know that's not true. And yet 
we do all sometimes, you know, I'm no exception, we do all sometimes sort of find ourselves going down a, you know, a track in life, as it were, and you sort of go, this isn't going exactly the way I want. And it's very tempting to sort of go, well, somebody forced me down this track, but actually the more interest you take in navigation, the more likely you are to sort of go, well, maybe I should take a different one. You know, however difficult and sort of scary it feels now, this one isn't working. I need to, I need to take a different one. And I think, I think, yeah, that's that's for me. Navigation is, starts when you choose which side of bed to get out of, and it doesn't finish until you've 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 sort of found a path that's uh, satisfying and, and edifying. Well, Tristan, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your book and your work? Thanks, Brett. There's lots of information on my website, naturalnavigator.com. There's a whole section explaining, you know, the, about the books I've written and uh, and, and what they contain but there's also you can also explore the subject through the different areas so people have different interests you know you might want to look at the plants you might be more interested in the stars and down the left hand side there's there's a menu so you can just go in through those and just have a bit of a play and pick up a couple of techniques to to have a go at it's fantastic well tristan gooley thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure thanks brett really enjoyed it all the best my guest today was tristan gooley he's the author of the book how to read nature it's available for pre-order on amazon.com also check out more about his work at naturalnavigator.com and when you go there he's got information about everything you can pick any topic how to be guided by the sun the moon stars plants animals you name it he's got articles on there all for free so go check it out natural navigator.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash read nature, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, you've got something out of it, I appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.